Hi, this is Colin McCallan. Thank you for listening. Please do us a favor and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you. Welcome to Is This Legal? Here are your hosts, attorneys Colin McCallan and Russell Hedges. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another edition, a holiday edition of the Habits and McAllen Is This Legal podcast. My name is Russell Habits. I'm here with my partner, Colin McAllen. Hello. So today we are going to be talking about something that, you know, it's fitting that it's a holiday edition because... I thought we'd pick something warm and fuzzy and, you know, something that will get us in the Christmas cheer, right? Well, well, really what I was thinking is, you know, for people who are actually gathering for COVID, sitting around the Christmas table, when your Aunt Gertrude makes you just crazy enough to want to poke someone's eye out (laughs) and you want to do it, you can actually think, can I get off? On the insanity defense. Ah, you think that's what's going through uh, everyone's mind when they're there at the table uh, with Aunt Gertrude? I mean, it's probably because Aunt Gertrude is talking politics, you know, so depending on where... Without her mask on. Or right. with her mask or, on, depending right. on... <laughs> depending on your political persuasion. Depending on your flavor. Right. So, I mean, uh, Colin, this podcast is going to get crazy. Yeah, this, I mean, frankly, I think we're going to get bonkers here. <laughs> it's um, it's going to be nuts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This is going to be insane. So we are talking insanity and the insanity defense to criminal cases. Mm -hmm. So I want to start off and kind of talk a little bit about the history because, um, you know, it seems like in today's day and age that, you know, the modern life is what creates all this just insanity and you know, really, that's not the case. The insanity defense specifically was first noticed back in ancient Rome. So we're talking about thousands of years ago where lunatics were not accountable for their action. That's not your word. That's their word. That is their word. <laughs> lunatics. Is that where? Is it was it Roman? That's where we get that word. The... I mean, apparently. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm no Roman scholar, I'm, but yeah, I do I'm no do, spelling scholar. I do. I, I, do, I, do, I do host a podcast. So. <laughs> so that makes it right. Once you say it, it actually makes it right. Right. And um and and you know you see this throughout history, like 1200s in England, um, madness was an excuse for criminal action where people would not be held accountable. And that goes right up to the U.S. legal system, criminal legal system, where the the really first rule on insanity was the monoton rule. That's M apostrophe N. Oh, you're taking me back to those law school days, man. I mean, monoton, yep. I know, which which is a really odd name. Yeah. But it's not McNaughton either. It's no, Monoton. No, it's M apostrophe Naughton. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre, but I mean, I'm assuming I'm saying it right. Um, but Monoton rule basically says that the jury's asked two questions. One, did the defendant know what he was doing? And two, did the defendant understand that his actions were wrong? And if the answer to those two questions are no, then he is not guilty by reason of insanity. That's right. And and that's basically kind of the general standard. I mean, this monoton rule has been modified, and frankly, uh, every state in our country kind of has their own variation uh, of, the, of, of what the definition of legal insanity is. But Russ is correct. Basically, it comes down to, is this person able to distinguish right 
from wrong. So I'll tell you, you know, that monotony rule, some variation of that is what is what has been in in every state, you know, until, you know, recently actually there's four states right now. I don't know if you knew this, four states don't have insanity defenses. You know, I saw Idaho was Idaho, one state. Idaho, Utah, Kansas, and I can't think of the last one. Someone out there, tweet us and let us Just know. Just need to make a note. Do not murder anyone in Kansas. Okay. Oh, 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 only it. because of insanity, though. Oh, oh right. <laughs> but but there's, there's another standard other than monoton, and that's the ALI test. That came around a little later, and that basically was a lower standard. Instead of you can't tell right from wrong, it was are you substantially impaired in telling right from wrong? Mm. It also incorporated this extension to McNaughton that a lot of people put, which is called the irresistible impulse rule. And what that basically says is even if you knew it was wrong, if you were just so compelled to those actions that you couldn't control your conduct, it's still not guilty by reason of insanity. So the ALI test was actually more lenient towards insanity defenses than monoton. And by, let's say, about 1981, every state had either the ALI or monoton or some variation, variation. of those. Right. And I say 1981 for a reason. Sounds like something important happened in 1981 that might have changed things. Something significant happened. Well, shortly before 1981... The movie Taxi Driver came out. Did you ever see that movie? No. Well, I, I, I don't know if I want to admit that. I know it's a popular movie, but no, I've well, never seen Taxi Driver. Well, you know, that's actually, it's on my Netflix queue, on my list to watch. And it has been on there for like a year, but there's always just something that has a little more priority. Right. Like if I can kick back and watch an episode of The Queen's Gambit, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> I haven't I'm, seen that one either. Heard it's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, you, okay. sh you should see that. All right. Um, but getting back to Taxi Driver, um, you know, this is not just a fun pop culture quiz. This is actually a popular movie, and it wasn't just popular with most people. It was popular with a guy named Hinckley Jr. John Hinckley, was that his John name? John Hinckley Jr. He became infatuated with this movie. He became obsessed with it, and Jodie Foster was a main character in the movie. In order to impress Jodie Foster or her character in that movie, he attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan on March 30th of 1981. I see no flaw in that plan. I mean, I assume Jodie Foster she, she was like, melted wow, in her knees. Were, I, mean, I can't believe you're so cool Gosh. that you tried to assassinate a president. I, why didn't I think of that when I was wooing my wife? I don't, <laughs> that, would have been, that would have been a really good idea. So, so he obviously had some significant mental health issues. He went to trial for murder of, for attempted, attempted murder. murder of the president. He was tried under the ALI standard. So it was that slightly more, less stringent. More favorable right, to him. More favorable to him. And he was acquitted. He was found NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, so, okay, so here's a good time to interject. Fans out there, listeners out there, what do you think happens when someone gets found not guilty by reason of insanity? I mean, maybe I can answer on behalf of uh, Do, John Q. Listener. Yeah. I, I think the answer is obvious. I, I just focus on those first two words, not guilty. Not guilty. That means he didn't do anything. That means he's getting released, I would assume. He's, he's I assume John Hinckley is, you know, out 
doing whatever he's do- watching Taxi Driver, probably. <laughs> right, right, probably. <laughs> Just reinforcing his obsession. Right. So, so he and anyone, John Hinckley Jr. and anyone who gets found not guilty by reason of insanity gets institutionalized. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're they, not going home. You're not going home. You're not released. You're not done. You're not out there. Um, you are institutionalized. And traditionally, you're institutionalized for life. Yeah. Traditionally. Mm-hmm. Right. It, now, depending, it, it, part of that depends on, um, I guess, the punishment for the crime that you are being tried for. For example, if it's a murder case, as it was in Hinckley's case, that obviously carries a possibility of life in prison, which means that even if he's found NGRI, he could serve for the up to the rest of his life in a mental mental institution. I believe that's how most states kind of create the, the length of time that a person might have to spend in a mental institution. They revert back to what what are the possible penalties for the crime they were charged with. And and again, so and that is how most states work, but mental institutions are not going to release someone or traditionally not going to release someone if they're insane. Right. So even if it's it's a case where it's a shorter time frame, if someone is insane, a mental institution is going to say, you're involuntarily incarcerated right. here. You're institutionalized. Con- and- yeah. Contrast that with a typical sentencing where a judge says, okay, you have to serve 10 years in prison or 50 right. years in prison. You have a number and then that's going to be followed by parole. This is a different ball of wax. We're, I mean, you, you, you really have no idea when you are going to be released from confinement in this institution. And, and it's really interesting, like the, the trends in public perception, like people used to know this, right? And then it, it started changing when people started getting out of these mental institutions. And it was really two reasons they started getting out. One, um, the field of psychiatry advanced so that people were actually getting treated sure. for mental institutions instead of like you go back to um, what's what's the uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, which is a phenomenal portrayal of like how mental institutions used to be where, right. I mean, it, it's it's horrible conditions and no one's getting treated. Lobotomies, electroshock. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, no, one, stuff. no one's getting better. Like that's one of Jack Nicholson's best best portrayals. I think he may have won an Oscar for that, but I, agree. I, I prefer his, uh, uh, his portrayal of Wolf in the movie Wolf with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. I have never seen that. I'm joking. It's a terrible movie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've and, never even heard yeah. of that. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, so even, even greats, even greats like Jack Nicholson have just losers. Oh yeah. You know, you make mistakes. Right. So, so speaking of mistakes, like John Hickley made that mistake, but you know what, you know where, where he is today. So 1981, he went into custody. Okay. I, I assume he, they let what they kept him in the funny farm for like three or four years and let him out. Yeah. 35 years, 35 years. Yeah, well, he, he did attempt to kill a president, Wow. <laughs> but so in 2016, he was released. He was released with a ton of conditions to go live with his mother, who was still alive, amazingly, 93, 94 years, years old. Um, then in 2018, he was granted permission to live on his own. One more thing about Hinckley, too. Isn't it true, Russ, um, that, I mean, he had been evaluated all the time while he was institutionalized. And for like the last 20 years, yep. he did not present uh, really any significant signs of significant mental health issues. That, that's right. His, all of his issues were in remission for 20 years. But as you just said, when you assassinate the president, right. they're not just going to let you out when you show signs of improvement, are they? Right. right. And that's that, that's a takeaway here, folks. I mean, you know, the, uh, anybody who gets, I guess, uh, 
acquitted is really the word that you use. It, acquitted with this verdict. It's not like they're going home. They have a very, very long road ahead of them. And, and sometimes they, they may end up doing more time than if they were convicted of a guilty verdict for that same charge. Well, that's that's a great point right there. Like we actually saw recently during research for this podcast, there was a case in Colorado where a not guilty by reason of insanity plea was entered for a class five felony, which in Colorado is right. the second lowest. It's a it, it's a it, one it's, to three range. Right. It, and, and the guy had no criminal history. So like most people who get this might get probation, no right. jail. And, Maybe some county jail. You know, but, th- but this guy, by by asserting NGRI, <laughs> is facing up to three years in a mental health institution. And theoretically assuming, more. Assuming <laughs> right? that the jury actually bites off on his insanity defense, which we're, we're going to talk about later. There's big problems with that. Yeah. So so before we move on, I want to say, because that one of the reasons is better treatment. People were getting let out. The second reason is these due process violations where lawyers were saying, hey, people who are mentally ill still have due process rights Mm -hmm. and you can't just warehouse them. You can't just put them in in custody indefinitely without any evaluations, without anything. So people were getting out and that created this this kind of culture where this public perception where, hey, we want to get tougher on these NGRIs because we don't want these people out out there insane, committing right. new offenses. And that created the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, which is a direct outspring of the Hinckley case. And that basically made it much, much more difficult to assert NGRI. It took away the substantially impaired. It said you absolutely had, had to be unable to appreciate the nature of the wrongfulness, mental disease and defects would not otherwise constitute a defense. So it made it very, very tough to assert this defense. Yeah, and and I guess this is a good time to mention that, of course, the criminal justice system is replete with defendants who have some sort of underlying mental health issue. That's not what we're talking about when I'm talking about, when we're talking about insanity. I mean, uh, most mental health disorders that people have um, even if they directly uh, attribute to a person committing a crime, do not rise to the level of being able to not distinguish right from wrong. Yeah, not it's, even it's it's a, it's a very very high standard. Yeah, not even just most. Like the the overwhelming majority. I mean, anyone out there who knows a sheriff knows anyone who works at a jail knows that. I mean, mental health is is just everywhere. It's a daily. Concern. I mean, it's a daily concern with, I mean, the percentage of people who have mental health issues in custody is massive. Right. And, you know, those people actually do get treatment through probation apartments, through parole, through the court. Um, but we're, that's very different than this very high standard that we're talking about. So let's, let's talk about how this works in operation, Russ. Um, you know, first of all, uh, so let's say a, a person has committed a crime and they want to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. First of all, that's what they have to say. They have to say, I plead not guilty by reason, of, by reason of insanity. They can't just say, I plead not guilty. They have to assert this specific plea. So can't, can't the guy just go into court and like just be off his rocker? You know, just, just be like talking to the walls and just like, you know, dude, I don't know. How, whatever sure, the craziest they, thing you can imagine right. is. I think what you're talking about too is, is this concept of malingering. Can a person fake mental health? Uh, like a mental health episode in order to get off their case. 
No, that, that is virtually impossible. We're, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But here, here's why their plea has to be spo- so specific. If they plead not guilty by reason of insanity, it's not like the court and the judge and everybody's just going to take the guy's word for it and say, oh, OK, well, then let's just go to trial and have an insanity trial. Right. It's actually going to trigger a very specific chain of events that has to occur before the trial, uh, you know, before a judge will even determine whether or not that plea is legitimate. Here's what I mean by that. If a person asserts uh, NGRI, the court is immediately going to arrange to have that person's mental health evaluated. By the um, state. By the state, yes. Um, so here in Colorado, for example, we actually have a state mental health hospital um, in Pueblo, Colorado. And really any in-custody defendant who asserts NGRI is going to be sent down there for, for a state expert to evaluate them. Now, uh, evaluations are not limited to the state's expert. Defense, uh, d- defense experts can also uh, examine the defendant. In fact, they'll be required to. Yeah. Um, and, and, and by the way, a few things here. Um, the defendant, by making this NGRI plea, waives all normal rights to confidentiality that he has. So, so that makes sense because if you're in there and you're trying to be assessed on your mental competency, which is, I say competency, that's a slightly different issue and I don't want to get in the weeds, but insanity, insanity, right. Whether or not you're insane, you have to be able to present that to the judge because a judge will not allow a not guilty by reason of insanity defense without competent evidence that there is an insanity issue. Well, yeah, but that's not to say, though, that if the state expert comes back and says, I find this guy sane, that doesn't mean that the judge gets to say, sorry, you can't plead not guilty by reason of insanity. He can still allow that plea to go forward. Um, but there still has to be evidence. Th- yes, there, there has to be some evidence. There doesn't have to be a lot, though. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, all of these experts, they they will all get a chance, both for the state and for the defendant. They can independently evaluate the defendant, they can come to their own conclusions. They have to share reports with each other. Right. Um, it's not like the defense expert can interview the defendant and then come back and tell the defense attorney, oh, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. And the defense attorney says, oh, okay, well, we'll just bury this evaluation then. We won't make it. No, no. Once you raise this, all of this kind of becomes public. Every interaction with the defendant becomes recorded, both for audio and video. That's actually in the Colorado Revised Statutes. Um, it specifically dictates how these interviews are going to be conducted. And then so after all of these evaluations are completed, then the case gets set for trial and a jury of 12 people will listen to the evidence. Now, remember the burden of proof in this country. Um, It is not uh, the burden of the defendant to prove that he was insane. It is the burden of the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was sane at the time he committed the act. And that is that is an affirmative defense. That's how affirmative defenses work, where the burden is then once an affirmative defense is raised. And again, you have to have evidence of that affirmative defense. So a judge says enough evidence has been presented where I find that this affirmative re- re- affirmative defense is an appropriate defense, then the prosecution has to prove that person sane. They have to disprove the affirmative defense. Now, that is different from the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. 
which is very unusual. The, the act of 1984, after Hinckley, after the uh, Reagan assassination attempt, shifted the burden from the prosecution to the defendant to prove insanity by clear and convincing evidence. And that's something we never see. No. I mean, clear and convincing evidence is not a standard in criminal law, typically. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. It's when you guys sit there and you hear, I'm innocent until proven guilty. Right. That is the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. So it was very unusual for them to go this far and say that the burden not only shifted, but it shifted to the defense by clear and convincing evidence. So, so that's one difference. And another difference, which is very interesting, under this act in 1984, the experts in this act were not allowed to opine on the ultimate issue of sanity. So, so what that means is, okay, you have a defense attorney or a defense expert who says, yep, I think he was insane. You have a prosecution expert who says maybe the same thing. They're not allowed to testify that I think he was sane or insane. Now, this is a federal standard that you're talking federal about, Federal right? standard. So this is very different, though, from state standards. Right. Like, for example, what I was saying earlier, Colorado, the the entire burden of proof still remains with the prosecution. Right. The, the defendant has doesn't really have to put forward any evidence to show that, uh, that he was insane. Here's another thing about this that's interesting. The, um, remember that this is an affirmative defense. If a defendant pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. He, make no mistake about it, he is confessing to the crime. He is saying, I did this. Um, in other words, he's not able to say, I didn't do this, I'm not guilty, but if you think I did do it, I was insane. You're not allowed to do that. This is what we call a confession and avoidance defense, which means you have, uh, you have to actually admit, yes, I did all of these things, but the reason that I am not guilty is because I did not have the appropriate mens rea, which is required by law, uh, to you know to commit this crime. All right. So what about insane. what about temporary insanity? Let's say that um, Cornelius is out and he gets so just blackout drunk and high and whatnot. He has no idea what he's doing. And he goes and he shoots Jebediah. Okay. And he doesn't remember it. He doesn't know what's going on. He was not in his right state of mind, right? He was, he didn't mean it. He didn't know what he was doing. Can he claim temporary insanity? So uh, in that particular situation, no, he cannot. Because really what we're talking about is temporary insanity due to voluntary intoxication. You can't get drunk or, you know, hammered or whatever, then do whatever you want and then take no responsibility for the crime. Um, that's not going to be a defense. Same thing. Let's say uh, Cornelius is getting home from work and he walks into uh, his bedroom to change his clothes and he sees his wife in the sack with Jebediah. And he gets so mad, he's just so furious, he grabs his gun without thinking, shoots them both. Okay, um, that, you, he might argue at trial, look, I, I lost my mind for a minute. I saw something that just sent me into such a state. I didn't know what I was doing. I wish I hadn't acted that way. I, I temporarily lost my mind. That's not going to work there either. That's provocation. That's heat of passion. Now, he may face lesser penalties and uh, a shorter sentence, but he is not, uh, he's not going to be, I guess, exonerated by the fact that he was put in that state of mind based on what he saw. Right. So really, they're really, coming to where you're going, there's really no such thing as temporary insanity. 
Okay, so let's let's. I think it's time to introduce a new female character. We've had Jebediah, we've had Cornelius, but our listeners have not met Cornelius's wife. Oh, what's her name? Her her name is, as you might expect, Myrtle. Myrtle, Myrtle, <laughs> Myrtle. Yeah, <laughs> like like moaning Myrtle from Harry Potter. <laughs> I mean, in this case, maybe. <laughs> But let's 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 move on. So 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 let's say um, so he shoots Myrtle and Jebediah. Um, but and instead of saying you know he just was so mad he did it, he actually had some underlying mental condition that kind of created this irresistible impulse. So maybe that, he was already on the way yes, in some mental health way that exactly. just pushed him over the edge kind Ex- of thing. Exactly. Then you might be able to use that. You know, I had a case where um, my client was a diabetic and it was, it was a really tough case, but it, my client was accused of killing his wife. Now he was drunk. He was on, had taken a bunch of drugs, but he was diabetic and his he was in a hyperglycemic state. It was honestly amazing he was alive. He was kind of in a stupor. It was two days later before they found the body. They found him. He had no idea what he was doing. He had no memory of it. He was clearly in an altered state. And we actually initially um, pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, but ultimately, in that case, we were not allowed to take the not guilty by reason of insanity verdict to a jury because we couldn't argue it because there was not enough evidence that it was actually a, a changed mental state that was more than temporary, right? I, I see what you're saying. It was brought on by the <clears throat> hyperglycemia, by the drugs, by the alcohol, but it wasn't an underlying mental condition. So it, it, he, he, it was like a, a perfect storm of circumstances. Yes. But nothing that would have ris- risen to the level of being able to distinct being able to say that he couldn't distinguish right from wrong. Exactly. And we couldn't absolve him of responsibility for that. Was he convicted? He was convicted of a lesser charge. He was convicted of second degree murder. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, and that's, that, that's the issue. Um, if you, if, if you're not pleading, uh, insanity, you're going to be very, very limited in terms of what mental health information you can elicit on right. behalf of someone who actually has really severe mental health issues right. or it, in your case, an underlying health condition. That, that's exactly right. Like we couldn't have brought in all the things we did in that case without having that plea, even though it was ultimately something we couldn't yeah, use. That, that, that stuff would be basically deemed as irrelevant right. to whether or not the person committed the crime. Because if, if he's sane and you can't prove otherwise, that stuff is not going to matter right? You got it. Okay. That's an interesting case, Russ. Well, here's a couple of other just quick rapid fire facts about the insanity offense. Oh, we're on the rapid fire round. <laughs> rapid fire. Here this. we go. Yep. Here, here's one for you. Um, <clears throat> I guess true or false, Russ, can a defendant, the, the guy charged, um, can he object to uh, an entry of a not guilty plea by reason of insanity on his behalf. Does does he have the ultimate say of whether or not they can make that plea or not? I mean, I assume he can object. A defendant can do whatever they want. I've seen people do some super crazy stuff yep. in, in court. But will it work? No, it won't. Um, so uh, a defendant's attorney or a judge can actually enter a not guilty plea by reason of insanity over the defendant's objection. Now, in those cases, there's probably going to be a lot of evidence to show significant health, mental have health issues on, on the part of the defendant. But the judge has that power over, over the objection of the defendant if he wants. 
And here's one more thing that uh, we talked about earlier, uh, this concept of faking it, or the, the psychological term is malingering. All you have to do is be smart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Like, you know, if anybody has seen that movie, Primal Fear, uh, it was in 1996. So sorry if you if I'm giving something away, but uh, this is a guy who's faking a mental health in, uh, mental health episode in order to get off of a very serious murder charge. It is virtually impossible in the real world to basically fake psychologists, fake a court, and fake a jury of 12 people that you are insane, unless you really are. Modern psychological science um, has just become very, very advanced, where they are not only, where these professionals are not only diagnosing mental health issues, but they are also specifically looking for signs of malingering on the part of the defendant. Every single test that someone takes has questions designed to to show malingering or faking right. it, yes. right? Malingering is basically faking it. Exactly. And every single test has those. In order to truly fake it, maybe you have to be like a PhD in psychology who actually designs these tests. Then maybe you could right. do it. That's right. Right. But other than that, it's not happening. No. So, um, you know, I think this this is going to kind of segue to the last kind of area of discussion that we want to have, which is man, this seems really, really hard to mount, right? This this defense, <laughs> right, a, Russ? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's very easy. It's incredibly hard. And In it fact, also sounds like the pitfalls, even if you succeed, are, are really, right. really do, pronounced. Do, do you want to mount this defense right. is a question you have to ask. Exactly. You know, I, I couldn't find any national stats, but I found some stats, I believe it was out of Montana, where the number of defendants who mounted an insanity defense was less than 1%. And out of that less than 1%, the number who were successful in mounting an insanity defense was less than 1%. I mean, look, the public and most importantly, juries are skeptical of this defense. They, they don't like the notion, what, and, and they might not have all the information, but they, they don't like the concept of someone avoiding responsibility for right. something that they did, especially if it was something terrible. And, and we the have- lunatics and madmen. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your Roman emperor voice? Yes, thank you. Uh, Caligula, act to be more specific. Well, Julius Caesar, why don't you, uh, let's talk about a very famous case that's fairly recent and it's homegrown, unfortunately, right here in Colorado. Yeah, Colorado, unfortunately, has more than its share of mass shootings. And we're going to be talking about one of those. That was the uh, James Holmes uh, Theater, Aurora Theater shooting in 2012. That is where... It was uh, the premiere of a Batman movie, and James Holmes appeared in costume and as and, the Joker, as the Joker, yeah, yeah and yeah. ended up massacred, massacred thirteen people, thirteen dead. Um, so what happened on that case is so he was he was caught immediately, and he absolutely had mental health issues. Yep. You know, significant mental health si- issues. That si- was. That was never in dispute. Never in dispute by either side, right? The only question was how how big were those mental health issues? And he ended up going to trial in 2015. Yep, he pled NGRI, right? He pled NGRI. So, and again, in Colorado, you have to plead that right away. He did. He pled, or his attorneys pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And just the background of how that went to trial. And then I know you have some personal experiences here, Colin, because you were with the office uh, or you were, you had recently left the office where he was trying. Um, but what happened is the public defenders who were representing him said, Hey, we will plead him guilty to first degree murder 
with life, life prison, imprisonment with no, with no uh, right, no chance of getting out, and we'll do that tomorrow. And the DA's office, led by District Attorney George Brockler, said, no, we are pursuing the death penalty, and we are not going to accept that plea of guilty to the top charge with life imprisonment, no opportunity of parole. We are going to go to trial and go for the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to talk about that decision uh, in, in just a second and my own views on it. But uh, in terms of what actually happened, they did uh, plead not guilty by reason of insanity. He was evaluated by four separate psychologists uh, or psychiatrists. Uh, two of them concluded that he was insane at the time of the act. Two of them, of course, state experts indicated that he was not, that he was sane. Um, so this, all of that evidence was presented to the jury. They had a, a, most of that trial was basically not litigating what actually happened in that theater, but, uh, most of the testimony was surrounding James Holmes mental health. The jury rejected the not guilty by reason of insanity defense, and he was convicted, but then they moved on to the penalty phase, the death penalty phase, which is what, uh, happens next in, in a Colorado capital, capital case. case. Um, where the jury hears evidence to determine whether or not he should be executed. And the jury decided that he should not be executed. They gave him life and parole. And, and, life, life without, without parole. Me, life without the possibility of parole. So he'll be in prison for the so rest they of gave life. him. So they gave him exactly what his attorneys were offering before, <laughs> like three years before, yeah. and before the money was spent, and before <sighs> people were put through this trial. Russ, this case cost $5 million to the taxpayers of Colorado. And, you know, kind of taking away our topic for a moment, I, I, is, I used to work in that, in that office as a deputy district attorney. And, you know, it really frustrated me that the district attorney insisted on trying that case. I think it was a political move. Um, you have a defendant who's basically saying, hey, I have significant mental health issues and I'm willing to spend the rest of my life behind bars. And the district attorney said, nope, we're, we're going to insist on going forward with this. Um, you know, to the tune of $5 million to the taxpayers, you know, I, I know a person who works in that office who told me that, you know, a lot of people in the office had to compile the photographs from the scene of all these dead people. And these were gruesome, gruesome photos. All of these first responders, all of the police officers, they all had to be marched into court and relive this terrible event. Um, you know, that woman who I mentioned who works in the DA's office, who, uh, helped participate in that trial, she is still undergoing mental health counseling as a result of that, you know, and, 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 and the outcome of that case, um, was exactly the same as what his public defenders were asking for. Please don't execute this man with significant mental health issues. Um, we just want him to be put away for life in prison. We'll accept that, you know, and, and and I, I guess I have a really big problem with the fact that there was, while it may not have risen to the level of insanity, there was so much significant mental health issue for for that, for that man where it was, I I think it was going to be virtually impossible to get 12 people to agree that he should be executed because we don't want to execute mentally health, mentally ill individuals. Do we Russ? It seems like that's something that as a country we should uh, find pretty important. Well, that is, that is exactly why not just, not just executing, but that's why the whole basis of why NGRI exists is because punishment for people who don't understand what they did wrong or that what they did was wrong has no deterrent effect. It doesn't keep someone from doing it again. If you're mad, if you're insane, then 
this doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, you're, you're insane. You don't realize you, it wasn't a decision to break the law to do something antisocial. It was something, it was a mental defect where punishment is irrelevant to yeah. that. You know, well, if I may, I mean, the decision by Mr. Brockler to bring that case to trial, in my opinion, was insane. Um, but whatever. Uh, that's my soapbox for today. Uh, you know, if, 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 he's he's in prison for the rest of his life. He'll never get out. And, well, and, and that's and that's where he belongs. Exactly. So ultimately, it but, landed but, in the right spot. But look, I mean, I th- really, the original point that I was making is that, you know, the, the, the general public there really are a lot of misconceptions out there about how this plea works, but there there's really just a lot of inherent skepticism as well. I mean, there juries do not like this plea. And, you know, th- that's why, I mean, I can tell you in 17 years of practice, I've seen an NGRI defense exactly one time in a case that I handled. That was when I was a prosecutor. I've never raised it as a defense attorney. Yeah. That, the, the time that I spoke about was the only time I raised and, it. And if I did, it would be a very, very big decision that, you know, you'd really have to discuss with your client as best you can or you client's family to make sure you're making the right one. So, um, well, there you go. Uh, I think that kind of covers this, um, this topic, Russ, do you have anything else to add about insanity? Not insanity. I mean, hopefully we didn't make everyone nuts out there. (laughs) Let's, uh, let's, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Just as always, you can reach us on Twitter. Is this legal pod? You can reach us on Facebook at habits. McAllen. Um, feel free to shoot us an email. We are now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio. We are now on SoundCloud and Stitcher. I think as what well. you're saying is it's really, really hard to find us. Yeah, <laughs> I mean you, you're going to have to look <laughs> it long would be and hard. hard to not find us. <laughs> so, so if you didn't find us, you'd have to be crazy. Yeah. By the way, sorry for the brief hiatus. Uh, I had a COVID exposure right at Thanksgiving, so we weren't able to do an episode uh, two weeks ago like we typically do, but we are going to try and be back on track releasing these every other Friday. And happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. You've been listening to Is This